This episode of Mountain View Scattered was recorded as a part of our 2018 conference entitled Everyday Justice, God's Heart in the Christian Life. The presenter during this session is John Skeepers. He is the founder of Isapambana, the Center for Biblical Justice, based out of Cape Town. We hope that you enjoy. Isapambana is here to serve churches and the local communities and stuff. So if, if you just want talk about advice or anything or you want to say how can you replicate some of these things can we do workshops can we 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 have resources we're trying to make resources available so keep talking to us so this is not the be all and end all um like i said there's there's cards if you fill it in with your email address that we put on our mailing list um if you want to know more there are flyers over there but please keep talking um keep being a part of this process and if there's any way isabamana can serve you uh, we're, we're not here as the gurus, we're here as fellow journey, fellow travelers on a journey trying to bring about long-term sustainable change in South Africa. Um, and if you have better ideas, please come tell me. I'd love to take them for my own. I'm sorry. Uh, there is... This is dirty. Okay. So, we want to talk a little bit about the history of inequality in South Africa um, in this, this next session. It's a little bit... I realized after when I spoke a little bit about it that this, this is quite a, um, a mammoth undertaking, probably as most of my talks have been, trying to, um, trying to, trying to boil this down. So I'm just going to try and just look at four areas very briefly. I'm probably not going to say everything that needs to be said about them. So in the questions, you're probably going to have lots of questions because I'm going to leave stuff out. Okay, So I'm just going to make that apology up front. But just trying to look at, at the legacy of the church. Um, I think one of the things in South Africa is that we haven't, we don't know our history of our church. Um, we don't know the history of inequality. We, don't, we haven't realized how deep inequality and division has gone into the church, how we've been a part of this inequality. Um, and I think once we, and so I find it really helpful to look at where we've been. We all want to say, what's the next step? How do we go forward? How do we change things? And those are important questions. But in order to do that, we need to say, where have we been? What has been our journey so far? What is the legacy? When people out there hear church, when they hear evangelical, when they hear whatever, what are they thinking and, and what are they rightly thinking? What do we need to repent of? Have we repented of it properly? If these things have been built into our structures and our way of doing things, have we actually changed them? And so that's, that's part of the, 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 the kind of thinking behind saying, let's go back, let's look at our history, and hopefully that will help us to, to move forward, to write a different legacy going forward. So, yeah. Um, can we pray? I, I feel the need to pray. <laughs> Father, thank you for today. Thank you for this time. And I pray that as we, as we look at a little bit of history, Lord, and it will be something that shocks us. It will be something that moves us, something that changes, something that rattles us up. And Father, ultimately, I don't want to sit here feeling guilty and paralyzed by the immensity of the task, we, we, we want to be pointed to you, Lord. We want to be changed and reshaped and reordered, and we, we want to see this history. We want to see where we as a church have failed. We want to own that. We want to lament over it, we, but we want to see, Lord, just where, where we as a church have gotten things right. We want to be excited. We want to say we want to write a different legacy. We want to write a new legacy, a legacy of reconciliation, of, of true cornonia, of, 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 of righting the wrongs. Of, of redeeming all things in the name of Jesus. Um, 
So, Father, I pray that as we read this, keep us from paralysis, keep us from overwhelming guilt. Fill us with the joy and the wonder of your spirit. Fill us with the optimism and the hope that the gospel brings, um, both to us individually, as communities, and, and even to our wider society. Amen. One of the things that is often said, and we, we've heard it time and time again, is when we talk about race, when we talk about injustice, when we talk about situations, and, and the church is no different, often, often people will respond and say, why are you making this a race thing? What, what, it, it wasn't a race thing, but we're making it a race thing. And particularly in the church, we say, we're making a race thing, but we're actually all one in Christ. We, 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 we are united in the gospel. And, and you're bringing race in, you're bringing division in, where actually it shouldn't be. Well, that's a great theological concept which I hold to, that we are one in Christ, there's equality in Christ. My contention, though, is as the church in South Africa, we have never been one in Christ. We've never expressed that. And I think that's a legacy we need to earn. So it is a race thing because we, we've made it that. Because that's... That's, that's, that, that's how the church has come to South Africa. So I want to start um, really at the, kind of the first observation is I want to say that the church in South Africa is a marriage, if you will, born in injustice. From the beginning, Christianity in this country, when Christianity arrived, certainly as we, can, we know from recorded history, there may be some other sources, but from the beginning, Christianity was joined to colonialism to economic exploitation, to racism and injustice. That, 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 it came with on that boat. It, so, for instance, let me give you an example. In 1488, Bartholomew Dias, he clashed with the Khoikhoi near what is present-day Mossel Bay um, as they were trying to uh, get some water and provisions. The Khoikhoi didn't know where these guys are. They thought they were invaders. There was a clash. They fired back. Uh, they, there, was, there was a violent clash. So he got back in his boats and he sailed a little further down the coast. And what he does, he goes and plants a cross. So we have this violent clash with indigenous people, the people which, who, who, who live here. And the very next thing we go and we claim this name, this land. And we say, this land belongs to the king of... Yes, was Portuguese. Yes, Spanish. Hmm. I'm getting, it's Portuguese, Spanish, everyone's nodding for both because no one else can remember their history either. Uh, so, and you, you have him, he comes along and he plants this cross in the name of his king and in the name of the Pope. And he says, in, this is a Christian country, we're putting this cross here. Never mind the fact we just had this violent clash with people. Never mind. And so there's this, this meeting of violence in Christianity, of taking what is not ours, of, of claiming land that actually already belonged to people and saying, but this is now Christian land, and in the name of Jesus, we're erecting this cross here. Vasco da Gama did a similar thing in 1497. He landed in St. Helena Bay. There was another violent clash with the Khoi Khoi. Um, and later again, he had a, a violent clash at Mossel Bay, where he, was offend, where he offended the, the Khoi when, they, when his sailors took fresh water onto their ship without asking the chief's permission. Now that's Actually, just bad manners, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, if you think about it, I mean, we kind of, so, so there was an assumption from these white explorers who were blessed. They were given a mandate, in fact, by the Pope, by the king, to go and conquer lands and to, to bring Christianity in civilized lands in the name of Jesus. And they spoke of it as empty lands. 
No, the hands weren't empty. But you see, immediately from the beginning, there's an assumption that the, the people that live there are not people. And so we need water. It doesn't matter if this, this is people's water source. Well, they're not people. We come, we have the right, we take the water because we have this justification, even supposedly from God. Jan van Riebeck arrived at the Cape in 1652, and he does two things when he first arrives. One of the first things he, do, he does, you see, might, some of us might want to look at Vasco de Gama and Bartholomew Dias, and, and we would say, oh, those, they, were, they were Catholics. They were different, you know. Us Protestants, if, you, if you're a Catholic, I'm not disparaging. I'm just, it's just we, we'd like to use these things to keep people at arm's length and kind of say, that doesn't include us. Well, don't worry. For those of you who are Protestants, who are evangelicals, uh, who are Reformed like myself, here we go. We're, we're in the room now. Jan van Riebeck comes. He arrives in 1650, he does two things. He instituted first the Reformed Christian tradition. He builds a chapel. He builds a church. It's one of the first things he does. And he prays at his first council meeting of the uh, Dutch East India Company that true Reformed doctrine be spread amongst these wild and insolent people. And one of the second things he does, well, one of the things he does soon after that is he says, we need slaves to build this. We need slaves. Please send slaves from the East Indies. Please send slaves, and that's an area like Malaysia. Um, it's where a lot of our Cape Malay people come from. Uh, Indonesia, India, I think even Sri Lanka and Madagascar. Send people from there. So the first thing he does is says we need a reformed faith to, uh, and yeah, the civilizing influence and, and all that. But but he establishes his reformed faith, and he says, oh, please send slaves so we can build a colony. Because they originally had an agreement that they would not enslave the indigenous Khoi people which, by the way, didn't last very long, when it proved difficult and things were diff- and there was clashes. They said, oh, we'll just, this is too hard. We're just going to enslave them. But the slave trade from the East Indies, uh, they called it the Eastern Slave Route, was established. And the same man who said, we need the Reformed faith here, the same man who said, hey, let's, let's start getting the this, this slave trade going because we need to build our colony here. Now that that's a deeply troubling legacy, friends. And Christianity, right from the beginning, is wed with this. Is wed with the history of slavery. Um, and he builds the castle, the oldest existing colonial building in South Africa. And it stands to this day as a stark representation of colonization in a land. Representing not only the arrival of Christianity, but the legacy of land disposition. He comes and builds this great big structure, which is an exclusive... Uh, a building meant to exclude. If you've been to the castle, it, it, you can see it's got huge walls. I, I think it's a really weird castle, but anyway. I, if, but that was their castle. But, and the, the castle comes along, and it's a fort. It's designed to keep the people in safe and the people out. And that's both from the invading sea, because the sea used to come up to the castle, but also from the invading Khoisan people. It's saying, this is, we're taking this land. This is our land. You are excluded. We are included. And we're putting the Reformed faith inside this castle. Their Christianity was so often so closely wed to their culture and their cultural values so as to be indistinguishable. And the castle dominated the land in the 17th century as a place of exclusion, of unwelcome, of power and of superiority. There was also a legacy of economic exploitation right from the beginning. 
The Dutch East India Company was, actually, was famous for their ruthless monopoly of the spice trade. And this refreshment station that was established at the Cape was to build to protect and enhance that. It was built, it was built for economic greed and dominance of others. And it was a, they were ruthless. They, they performed many injustices in other countries and other areas. But they were ruthless in protecting their economic dominance of the spice trade. And they got wealthy of it. And the church was established in this country connected with this economic, ruthless dominance and oppression of others to make certain groups wealthy. So, so we, it's right from the beginning we have the, the, the Reformed tradition coming here and the young family establishing the church around colonialism, around cultural supremacy, around injustice, around land exclusion, and um, around economic exploitation. See, what began as a refreshment station for Dutch sailors became a place symbolic of oppression and injustice. And in many ways, I think this became an image that became true of the church itself. And sometimes today still is, often. My, my church meets opposite Church Square in Cape Town. Now, Church Square was the place where, where slaves were sold. There's a monument there where the tree used to be, where the slaves would be sold under that tree. And it's called Church Square because there's a huge church on the other side of the square. So you could buy a slave and go to church in the same place. But even more than that, that tree was where slaves often stood and waited under that tree while their masters went into church. While their slave-earning masters went into church to hear the gospel, to hear about the Reformed tradition, to sing songs to God, to praise God, while the people they owned sat outside, not even worthy to come into the church. Why did the incongruity of what happened inside the church and what happened on the square outside the church, exclusion, selling and owning of people, dehumanizing treatment of us, not jar the Christians in the congregation in such a way? Why, why did what happened inside the church never flow out, flow, flow out to see what happened outside the church? What is the legacy of the church? What is, and we can say they weren't preaching the gospel. We can say all these things. We, 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 we can say these things to defend ourselves, but this is the legacy of the church. It is intricately um, bound together with slavery and injustice in this country. It's as history has it there. In fact, the church and people who claim the name of Christ were those who, who started and perpetuated and carried on the slave trade. Do you know that on that square, there's a number of granite blocks on Church Square uh, commemorating the, the legacy of slavery and remembering the slaves. And, and a couple of those blocks um, are written around it, they're engraved in it, the names of slaves as they can trace them. People forgotten from our history. And you go and read some of those names. And remember, these were people taken. These were people with names and families and homes and cultures and traditions. And some of their names are, they're given names like Moses January. Do you see that? We're giving you, we're giving you a name from the Bible and the month of which your ship came into Cape Town. You are so dehumanized in coming here to serve these Christian masters that you are not even you're not even given the dignity of owning your own name. We are giving you a new name. How dehumanizing. 
and then we will sell you. But we have the audacity, we have the audacity to give people names from the Bible as if we are now Christianizing them. Perhaps the slaves should have named some of us to Christianize some of us with our legacy. Because what, what, what white Christians perpetuated in this country was not Christian, was not worthy of the name of Jesus. And that legacy of slavery is so deep in so many communities in Cape Flats and the township areas where people don't have roots, where colored people, particularly in this country, are feeling rootless and homeless and they're struggling and they're saying, who are we, what are the people we are? We did that. We did that in the name of Jesus. We bore the name of Jesus in a way. That is blasphemy, friends. You know that the fourth command says, do not bear the name of Jesus. Do not be, uh, bear the name of, uh, uh, do what? Do not, uh, do, not be, do not bear the name of God in vain. Do not bear in a way that dishonors. Well, when we come and we say we can own people, we can, we can dehumanize them by taking their names away and Christianizing them or giving them names whilst having ripped them from their, their countries and from their families and bringing them here to serve so-called Christian people while they can't even come into church and they have to sit outside after being sold like, a, like an animal. Well, in fact, and we do that in the name of Christ. That is blasphemy of the highest order. Blasphemy of the highest order. Well, many of us in the church often decry the spread of Islam at the Cape, and we have lots of things to say about the Muslims. Now, I'm not saying that's right, but you know that the, the spread of Islam at the Cape owes much to the legacy of the church. So, for many slaves that were brought to South Africa, they may not have been Islamic at first, but Islam, Islam was firstly seen to many slaves as a... As a as a means of dignity and independence from the oppressive and dehumanizing white man's Christianity practiced by the slave owners. They didn't want anything to do with that. So they said, we would rather have this religion, which seems to be a religion which uplifts brown people. We, 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 want, we want our dignity. We don't want your Christianity. That is the antithesis of what Christianity is about. But secondly, and even more shockingly, many slave owners, in fact, actively encouraged the Islamic faith. Supposed Christian owners actively encouraged the Islamic faith among their slaves. Why? Because conversion to Christianity carried with it the possibility of emancipation. Rules started changing and said, if your slave becomes a Christian, they can be freed. They ought to be freed. So slave owners, who are supposedly Christians, said, the last thing we want is our slaves to become free. So we will encourage the spread of Islam. Because Islamic slaves, we don't have to free them. On top of that, Christian slaves who are Christians, so the, the laws around freeing them was a little hazy and people could get away with it, but the laws around the marriage of Christian slaves were protected. So if, if you were Christian slaves, you were protected. You couldn't break up the family unit and sell them for more money. The woman go here, the, the, the father goes here, the sons go here. You had to keep them together. But the same right wasn't accorded to Islamic slaves. So, so Christians, supposed slave owners, said, what we want to do is we want these people to be, uh, we want them to, to convert to Islam. Why? So we can break them up, we can sell them, we can get more money from them. That is despicable. Breaking up family units. And this was by a people who increasingly saw themselves as in continuity with God's covenant covenant, and white Christians who believed they were destined for salvation 
as opposed to the heathen who are destined not for salvation. I use the heathen as their word, not mine. As the, the black and brown people who, who were not worthy to become Christian. And Christian became increasingly associated as something belonging to white people. Well, we have this unhappy marriage. And then we have what came in as interesting. We had these, what were known as the meddling missionaries. And so this is, this is a, a lot more of a mixed legacy. Some of those missionaries get a bit of a bad rap, but I think their legacy is a lot more mixed. So we remember, we remember the meddling missionaries and the seeds of liberation. It's kind of our second point. We remember, so, so as we look at the missionaries and we look at these early evangelical Protestant missionaries, we see their zeal, their faithfulness, motivated by a passion and a love for the gospel and a love for those who had not heard about Jesus. They left the comforts and the security of their home countries for unknown and potentially dangerous foreign shores. Many of them expected to die in the service of their Lord. And it was not uncommon for missionaries to bring with them their own coffin so that their bodies could easily be shipped back home. These brave men and women. And many of them did in fact die for their faith, often through disease or shipwreck or through hostile interactions with indigenous people. But they did it for the glory of Christ. They did it because they knew people needed to hear about Jesus. And some of the early uh, evangelical missionaries at the Cape were actually had a bit of a bad reputation. They were seen as agitators and nuisances by the early church for their desire to share the gospel with the indigenous people and slaves. And they often relentless campaigning for the fairer treatment of indigenous people and the abolition of slavery. So missionaries like Johannes van der Kemp and John Philip, who was, John Philip was actually quite instrumental in seeing the abolition of slavery at the Cape and the, ordinance, and the implementation of Ordinance 50, which, which said that actually slaves and indigenous people actually are humans, where there's an equality there. And then a few years later, the actual abolishment of slavery. He actually went back to England as an evangelical missionary, he went back to England after being given such a hard time, and he went back to campaign in Parliament for the abolition of slavery at the Cape. That, that, that's a good legacy. So we have the seeds of liberation, the seeds of saying all men are created, all men and women are created equal in the image of God, and we need to treat them as that. The, the missionaries brought that. They brought some of that to the country. And after the abolition of slavery, what, what happened is, and, and this, is a, this is one of the, the chief reasons for the Great Trek, was the abolition of slavery. The, the, the trekkers said, we cannot tolerate this abolition of slavery. We are going to leave. And they left the Cape and they trekked into the interior um, to get away. And, and they, they trekked in with a, with a knowledge and an understanding of saying, we are a people, a special people ordained by God. We have a covenant by God and we are uniquely we are uniquely God's people. There was a call, a kind of understanding of God's special treatment for them, for these Afrikaans trekkers, these Afrikaners. But yet, at the same time, what was the presenting reason? Was because they couldn't... Well, language is one of them, but the abolition of slavery was one of the key reasons. As we look back in history, as we re-looked, we saw that that, that happened very shortly after the abolition of slavery. They said, we cannot tolerate this fact that black people are regarded as the equal of white people. And then you throw other issues like language and British dominance. And I'm not trying, please don't hear me at all trying to paint the British and the English as, as innocent as we're not. We're not. Um, but yeah, so, so we have that. Um, we have... 
we have wonderful examples of, of so the Moravian missionary, George Schmidt. I don't know how to say that. I always want to say George, but um, I'm, going to say, I'm going to try my German. Jorg Smit, um, who, who went to preach the gospel to the Khoisan. Um, and he went out to Khanadendal. Uh, and he was preaching to, to, to these people. He was preaching to these indigenous people. At a time when all the, the, the white settlers said, those people are heathen, they are unrepentant, they will never come to faith. And actually, they kind of wrote it off, and they said they are destined for destruction, destruction as white people are destined for women. Well, Hawk Smith said, no, that's not true. He went out there, he preached, he preached, and um, they kind of left him. They thought, oh, he's a bit, he's a bit of a nutter. He's out there. We'll just leave him. But then, six Khoisan people came to faith, and he baptized them. And baptism, by doing that, that was an act of saying they have an equality and a dignity that's equal to white people. Well, the, the, the white settlers, the white authorities at the time couldn't take and he was eventually hounded and chased out and the church was kind of, uh, um, was, was very anti him. So eventually he left. Um, he left South Africa in 1744, despondent, dejected, and he went back home, just almost pretty much being chased out. Well, it was a number of years before the Moravians sent some people, some other missionaries out to come and replace him and to continue his work. In fact, it was in 1792, so that's just under 50 years later. And these missionaries, they went to Khanadendal, and something amazing had happened. And they, they met this old lady, uh, very old. Her name was Helena. She had been, um, and it turned out that she was one of the six people who had been baptized by Hogsmith. And yes, she had been given a, a Christian name, so they were, they were, they were not perfect. They were, they were uh, men and women of their time. But what happened is, is they started telling her, uh, and they were saying, oh, we, we come in continuity with this, and we, we, we are kinsmen of Schmidt, and we're part of it. And she said, oh, that's great. And she went over to a little box, and she opened it, and she took out the Bible Hog Schmidt had given her. And even though she was too old to read now, she had taught another and a couple of other ladies in the community to read the Bible, and they used to read it to her, and they had gotten converted. And this is a beautiful example that the missionaries came, and even though Smith probably feels like he left in failure, the gospel, the seeds of the gospel were planted, and God was working without the white people in this country. They were working, God was saving people, and he was restoring people, and he was redeeming people. And, the white, and when the white missionaries came back, it was a beautiful example of, of the, this elderly Khoisan woman saying, I've been reading this Bible all the time, and I've been sharing the gospel with people here. It's beautiful. Um, so, so we have some of that legacy of the, and we have the legacy of the missionaries. We we see that the the, the seeds of the gospel are planted, um, as they do that, and as we um, we remember their boldness and their faithfulness, we also acknowledge their mixed legacy, their cultural blindness, their racial supremacy, their paternalism, and their outright sin. At best, the missionaries were often unwitting servants of colonial powers, of their racial supremacy and their economic interests. They were very naive at times. At worst, they were outright racists and willing collaborators with economic and political interests to keep the indigenous people submissive and docile, using religion, as Karl Marx would say, as an opiate of the masses. And so missionaries have a mixed legacy here. And mission stations often became bastions of paternalistic power. And they controlled, they, they used their power and their access to things like plows and agricultural equipment and mirrors and other gadgets in order to control and to dominate the people. Uh, they very often were given land. They had some land on the, the outskirts of the tribal chief's uh, territory because he, he saw a value 
in having these missionaries around as some kind of go-between between the colonial powers in being able to have access to some of their materials. But he didn't want them too close to his capital because he actually didn't like them. But he, so, so they were also manipulated by the African chiefs very often, naively there. But very often what they started doing is they started dispensing land to people who'd come and live on the, on the, um, near the mission station, on the mission station. And so they began to control. And so they became these, these alternative centers of power. And they used it to control baptisms and access to communion. They used it to, to control the marriages and the discipline. And they became almost many rulers. And uh, these, these mission statements often, whilst having a good legacy and, 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 and teaching and, and giving more dignity and honor to some, often to the native people, it also became places of control, places where 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 indigenous people learnt and said, actually, the, the white person has the knowledge and the power, and they, they exercised that, and they used to control, and even in probably, and I say in a, in a benevolent paternalism, to oppress and to keep down, and to keep the, the indigenous people looking up to, to the white missionaries. Um, and, and they had accesses like schools and medicine that they used to control and manipulate people. They gave people land, in exchange for saying, you need to come to church. Um, and so mission stations, stations very often started um, with great egalitarian ideals, preaching the equality of all believers, preaching and, and putting, uh, putting forth to people saying, we, we, we are all one in Christ. We, we are all made in the image of God. We have an equality and a dignity. But very often their practice ended up doing things very different, and actually uplifting white people with the power and the privilege and the access to resources and using that to control and manipulate um, indigenous people. Not all, and inconsistently, but it was prevalent enough. But something interesting else happened at the, at the mission stations is they established mission schools, and they taught and trained many of the young, uh, bright, um, up-and-coming young black men mostly, um, and they taught them this knowledge that all are equal. They, they, the seeds of the gospel were sown, of, 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 of equality were sown in the lives of many of these, these young men. And even though the missionaries seemed to, to degenerate into a, a paternalistic benevolence, these young men took that seriously. And they said, wait, we are equal in the gospel. And so actually when we look at, a, at the founding of an institution like the ANC, it was founded by, by actually Christian men. Many of them were pastors. Many of them were, were believers. And they'd, they'd, they'd been educated and trained and instructed on the mission stations. And they said, we are, there's an equality. And actually, we're standing up for our Christian equality and our human dignity and equality. And so they started forming these organizations. And um, in one sense, that was this. And then we're talking about people like John Dube, Pixley Ka, Isaac Aseme, Sol Plachi, Albert Latuli, and even later... Um, men like uh, Nelson Mandela and Walter Sulu were educated on the mission station, on, on, at mission schools. They were, that seeds of liberation movement was found, was found and was fostered and was, was the soil in which it grew out. But sadly enough, they found within the evangelical church an unwillingness to follow where their doctrine, where the gospel of equality led them. And instead, they found a more willing ally in Marxism. Friends, I know Christians in this country have decried Marxism and communism. They've decried the liberation movement as that. And I mean, if you're old enough to remember the great communist threat 
of the ANC and these kind of, this kind of language is meant to keep us scared. Well, here's the thing we've got to realize is evangelical Christians in this country, we created. Even if, even if it is everything the apartheid government said it is, we created it. Because we, we, the gospel brought the seeds of equality and liberation, saying all men are equal because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then when our black brothers and sisters said, hang on, that means there needs to be political, economical, social uh, equality, we said, no, no, we don't mean that. And so they followed where their heart went. And so organizations like the ANC and others became more and more and more, further, moved further and further away from their Christian roots, became more and more influenced by Marxism and socialism and other movements later. We, and we fostered that environment where our liberation movements started with Christian heritages and moved away from them because we would not listen. Because our gospel that we preached, we did not listen to it. So, the history of the church in South Africa is complex and inconsistent. On the one hand, we have silent acquisition, or worse, entrenching and legitimizing, legitimizing racial division and economic inequality. On the other hand, providing the seeds of liberation and equality. Through the work of the early missions, in particular the mission schools, many of the celebrated leaders of the liberation struggle were profoundly shaped by their mission school education. We spoke a little bit about apartheid earlier. That's really the third thing I want to look at, just the heresy of apartheid. I'm going to be a little quicker on there. We spoke about the, the if, if you weren't here in the first session, we looked at the, uh, the 1957 synod where, um, where the pastors in the synod said, even though it is desirable and biblical that we keep the unity of the church because of the weakness of some, read white people who want to keep us separate, we're going to choose to have communion in separate buildings. And we know what that led to, and it led to the doctrine of separate development, and it led to all sorts of things like that. Um, so we looked a little bit at, the, at that, and we, we know that there was, there was um, uh, the doctrine of, of uh, particularly amongst many of the Afrikaner and the Dutch church, Dutch Reformed churches, the, the chosen race, uh, the special dispensation of God. We know that later neo-Calvinism came in, which was... Which was um, perpetuating like separate spheres of development. And we know all those were influences on apartheid theology. But I want to look at, at one that we don't often look at um, this morning, and that's the role of evangelical missionaries in creating apartheid. You see, even though the theology of apartheid was, a, was perhaps perfected by the Dutch Reformed Church, it was born among the English-speaking evangelical missionaries. who, As we said, we sought to promote the development and civilization of their African converts in line with the doctrine of the equality of all believers, but yet leaving the doctrine of white supremacy untouched. So we preached this gospel, but yet we would not go where it followed. And so we preached this gospel until it came to the point where it said, actually, that means we need to treat people differently when you have different systems. And we said, no, 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 but, but black people are not ready. They still need to be developed. They need to be civilized. They need more time. They need to be grown up to become the, these people. And, and later when they're ready, our job is to develop them. And so we created these separate churches where we had the, the real Christians, the mature Christians, and we had those who were still developing and maturing. Those are separate churches, friends. And it's built from a genuine desire, from evangelicals who are sharing the gospel of Jesus but yet are so influenced by their supremacy, their white supremacy, that they cannot go where their own gospel uh, leads them. And so, so those who are being taught this said, 
we're going to move to other forms of, we're going to move away from Christianity. We're going to embrace Marxism. We're going to embrace other doctrines. And friends, I want to suggest that is still the legacy of the evangelical church today. We promote the equality of all believers without really dismantling the systems of white supremacy. We haven't really sat down and said, what would this mean for us to follow Christ? What would it mean to say that we are equal? As a believer, and I'm going to use an economic example, and I know it's not a perfect one, but as a believer that lives on a wine farm in Stalamosh, that owns a wine farm in Stalamosh, really the same as a brother or sister who lives in Zwilichle. I mean, we can all do the theology, right? We can pass the theology exam. Yes, absolutely, we're all the same. But it doesn't really look like it, does it? What would it look like if we took our theology and we, we acted on it? We lived it out. So, apartheid, the seed, the, it was the, the apartheid was conceptualized by evangelical missionaries and perfected by the Dutch Reformed Church. Friends, I think that implicates most of us. I think us, us English speakers, we like to blame the Dutch Reformed Church. We like to put our distance between it. But we were just as guilty. We have just as much repenting and restitution to do. And actually, when we look at the last thing that I want to say very briefly, I want to talk about, is the myth of apolitical spirituality. I think perhaps the white English-speaking church perfected that. As we said, so Martin Luther King, first thing, he says, he who passively accepts evil is as much involved in it as he who helps to perpetrate it. He who accepts evil without protesting against it is really participating in it. And that sounds like a lot of the white church, a lot of the evangelical church. We said our job is just to preach the gospel. Our job, but we, we don't take seriously where Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. Friends, white people, would you live in a shack? Would you try and feed a family on, I don't know, 100, 500 rand a month? No. You're participating in that evil. You're benefiting from the system. You're not speaking out. You're not changing things because you love your neighbors yourself because Jesus' gospel enables us and changes us. Desmond Tutu says, if you are neutral in the face of injustice, you have chosen the side of the oppressor. And that's true, isn't it? That's what many of us white people did. We said, we don't support apartheid. We don't support what them, the, the, the National Party, the Dutch Reformed Church are doing. We did very little to change it. Because we're, benef we're beneficiaries. We had a vested interest in staying ignorant. We had a vested interest in a spiritual system that said, we can preach to people the good news about Jesus and their spiritual salvation, but we keep them down in terms of economic and social. We preach equality and we live in equality because we're divided into these separate spheres because we, we are politically neutral. Friends, I want to I burst that because I don't think there's such a thing as political neutrality. I think if you are politically neutral, you choose the side of the oppressors. You choose the side of those who have power. You choose the side of the status quo. And when the status quo is injustice, you perpetuate that. As evangelicals during apartheid, we said we were politically neutral. And yet we had separate churches. We looked just like the world. We had separate denominations. Almost every denomination in this country had denominations that were set up for, for white people, for uh, black people, for uh, colored people, and sometimes even for Indian people. We had set up, we looked just like the world. We, had, we said we were politically neutral, but we acted just like the world. 
We said we were politically neutral, and yet in Cape Town, we rode our cars on the roads and we travel on the trains on the railways. Railway lines and roads in Cape Town are profoundly political. They are the things that divide and shape our country. You cannot drive a car on a road in Cape Town and say I'm politically neutral because that road has been put there to oppress and divide and, and keep us apart from one another. Education was political. Where you sent your child to school, what you taught them, what you, they heard, the, the kind of education you got was, was profoundly different between, between a colored school and a white school in South, in South Africa. It still is today. Where you choose to child, it's a political decision. It's a decision based on power and prestige and ability to send them. Because I could choose where to send my sons, but other people couldn't. That's a political decision. We were involved in that. We were not apolitical. We were beneficiaries. As white people, we were beneficiaries of a system. And sadly to say, we taught many of our colored and black brothers and sisters that in order to be faithful to Christ, it meant they had to be politically quiet and acquiescence and accept the system that oppressed them. How wicked is that? We had to say that they need to keep quiet and sit down and not make a noise because that will make Jesus happy. While they can't feed their children, while they work thousands of kilometers from home, while they live in abject poverty, while we live in splendid luxury compared to that. And I'm, guys, I'm going to say it again, I'm white working class. I don't, I don't come from luxury. I know what it is to struggle. I know what it is to work hard. I remember my family doing it. But our situation was still infinitely further above the average black person in this country. We had a vested interest in maintaining the status quo. We were not politically neutral. You see, if we, if we really followed Jesus, and it would cost us, we would have to say to the government, and you might say, what could we have done? We're just, we're just a little group of people. Um, we're, we can't just send our children to this school or not drive on roads. Well, we could say to our government, we could say to our institutions, we could have said, judge yourself which is right for us to obey you or to obey God. You know, I was, um, I was recently at St. Mark's Church in, in District 6. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Um, it's one of the, when they leveled District 6, it was one of the areas declared a whites-only area, and they destroyed the whole entire area, um, leaving only churches and religious institutions. It's got to tell you something, isn't it? There's almost a superstitious fear of destroying a church. And I was there recently, and I was thinking about it, and I was just standing there and um, imagining, and I thought, you know, this fear of destroying places of worship by those callous enough to destroy everything else with very little thought of entire communities. But yet they, they're too scared to destroy a church to stand as an indictment to those of us who are silent. What if every church in... And there was a, sorry, this is a time in South Africa where we claimed we were like 87% Christian or something. What if every church in every community raised our voices in protest against that? The very fact that the government was scared to destroy a church said they were scared that there was a religious fear in them about offending God. What if every church in every community had come every, every Sunday and sat in the streets around District 6 and said, you're not going anywhere? You, what, if, what if we'd done that? What, what would the government have done with their quasi-religious uh, fear of God? This quasi-Christianity which said we can't destroy a church, but we can destroy a whole community in the name of God. What would have done? What if we'd stood up, we'd stood together, and we'd said, 
We will not allow you to treat those who the gospel calls our brothers and sisters like this. Would the story of District 6, would the story of Cape Flats, would the story of Cape Town be very different today? You see, an evangelical separation of spiritual and political was supposedly to allow spiritual growth to develop unhindered. But it actually allowed us to do our evangelism and have our Christianity without ever challenging our privilege and our status as white people in this country. And we taught black and colored people that was meant to be faithful. Friends, I want to finish and say our theology failed us. Our theology failed us during apartheid. How could our good evangelical theology have ever allowed or justified it or created the blasphemy that was apartheid done in God's name? How could it? We were Christians, we upheld the system. We were quiet, we were acquiescent, we allowed it. All in the name of good theology. While preaching so-called good theology of forgiveness of sins and atonement and all these things that I, I will stake my life on. 1994 happened and it didn't automatically fix everything. We as a church, we need to go back and we say, how did our theology allow us to get there? How did our theology allow us to be quiet in the face of that whilst, whilst an apartheid government used the name of the Jesus we love in order to perpetuate that? How did we allow that? How did some of us condone that? How do we buy the lies? You see, we failed the test of apartheid. We chose acquiescence. We chose comforts. And an acontextual, individualized, and otherworldly faith instead of the radical neighbor love, the self sacrifice for the other, and a prophetic commitment to speak out and act against injustice in our land and in our churches. We have a chance to do things differently, to re examine our theology, our reading of scripture, our rich heritage, and our context, and to ask what does faithfulness look like to God in this place at this time? Friends, our faith always has a postal code. It always has a postal code. It's not, it, it doesn't live up in the sky. It's not something we just drop down from earth. It always matters and says, what does it mean to be God's people in this place in this time? And in South Africa, that's got to touch racism and inequality and the legacy of apartheid and the continuing spirit of apartheid, which is alive and well in South Africa today. It's got to. And because of Jesus, we have the power and the means to do something, to stand up, to sacrifice ourselves, to give up our rights to lay down our lives for others. And we must ask ourselves what legacy we are currently creating. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus in our city, wrapped with division and inequality? What does it mean to love our neighbor in a city where so many still don't have adequate sanitation or running water in their houses, where thousands upon thousands still live in shacks and informal settlements? What does it mean to worship God where our brothers and sisters go to bed hungry, where single mothers work long hours at dehumanizing, back-breaking, soul-destroying labors for a less-than-livable wage, all the time hoping their children are safe and out of trouble? What does it mean to follow Jesus? Is our legacy going to be any different? I think we, by and large, as evangelicals, failed the test of apartheid. I think we failed, in many ways, the test of the last 20 years. 24 years, whatever it is. We can't, do, we can't go back and change it. But today, we can say, what is our legacy going forward? How do we change that? What do we do? What is in our hands? Friends, will we take up this challenge? Or will we choose 
for those of us who can, to remain ignorant, to remain willfully ignorant, knowing we have a vested interest in remaining ignorant. We have a vested interest in promoting spiritual at the exclusion of social, political, and economic. As a white man in this room, I'm going to tell you I can make that choice easily, just like that. But I will not be faithful to my God. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but took on the very nature of a servant, who came to earth, who died on the cross, who redeemed me and restored me way beyond what I deserved. That's the God we follow. The question is, will we follow him? Let me pray. Father, there's so much in our history. There's so much pain. And yet in the midst of there's beautiful stories. Father, I, I just love that story of Schmidt, the Moravian missionary. I love that story saying you didn't need white people to work in this country. You've, always, you've been working and you've always been working. And you continue to work with and without us, Lord. Father, help us to, to realize that equality means equality. Help us to realize that when you say we're equal, you mean we're equal. Help us to listen to the voices of our black brothers and sisters, Lord. I'm so convicted by that. Help us to know that you are working in ways that are beautiful and miraculous and wonderful. But Father, we repent. We repent where we've been complicit. We repent where we have knowingly and willingly been quiet. We repent for those of us who've had vested interests, whether we are, are white people who have benefited, whether we're black or colored people who are given some scraps of, of, of comfort above others, and so we, we chose to be quiet. Whether we chose to be quiet, whether we continue to be ch- quiet for fear, just to try and keep our own little life safe. Oh Lord, we... Your love is radical, it's boundary crossing. It's self-sacrificing. We want to follow you, Lord. We need your help. We cannot do this alone. We want to lift up Jesus. We want to model Jesus. We want to walk in your world. We want to walk in ways that honor you. Not for our glory, but for yours, Lord. And I pray that as we start to think about this, as we re-examine our theology, Father, I want to pray that the next 20 years in this, church, in this country will be the church's finest hour. So be a time where we stand up, where we lay down our lives, where we sacrifice, where we love one another radically and sacrificially, all in the beautiful, wonderful, redeeming name of Jesus. Thanks for listening, and remember that you were brought into the church by the saving work and person of Jesus. Also, that you are sent out to tell everyone about him. We look forward to you joining us for the next episode of Mountain View Scattered.